0: Good morning, church. What are some of the common fears that you have when you try to share your faith? Think about those common fears. The other day I was at a a hockey game, brought my son with me, and there was a Jewish man sitting next to me. And I'd seen him at a few other games. We probably have bought the same ticket package for this season. Um, And in between periods, I, I tried to start up a conversation with him. You know, started to tell him about the Lord. That was my goal, at least. I was hoping to share Jesus with this Jewish guy that was next to me. And I thought I'd have, you know, some interesting points of um, connection with him. I've done my PhD in the Hebrew Bible and the Old Testament. So I thought maybe there's some potential connection or some interesting talking points that we could have there. Well, about two minutes into the conversation with him, it was very clear to me, this guy not only needed Jesus, he needed Jewish Um, he, he had just no concept of, of even what it meant to be a Jewish person. I I started to talk with him about the book of Isaiah. I'm, I'm thinking, oh, this will be a good connection. You know, tomorrow I'm going to be teaching Isaiah in the classroom and it might be a a fun thing to to start with Isaiah. And, And there's a lot of connection to the Messiah from that book. He didn't even know Isaiah was in the Bible. No idea that this guy was a prophet. He had no clue who Isaiah was. So here's, here's a guy who is following some of the Jewish dietary laws, and, and he had the yarmulke on his head, and, and beyond that, though, I'm not sure he even had a sense of what it meant to be his own religion, and that made conversation with him quite challenging. Now, I wish I could end this story with, and then the guy accepted Jesus as a savior, and he's here with you today, and that, that would be great, right? Um, I wish I could even share that we got to Jesus, but not every attempt to share your faith is a home run, even for a pastor. Now, oftentimes I find that, that Christians are, are afraid to share their faith because of different things, different obstacles that they're worried about, different fears that they might have. There's, there's things that stop us from starting that conversation, even attempting to take it to the gospel or to take it to Jesus. And I find that people often have the same kinds of fears, when they're thinking about evangelizing. I'm gonna put a slide up here and I wanna ask you, do any of these sound familiar to you? Are these things that you might've wrestled with at some point? You know, what if I embarrass myself while I'm talking? What if I don't know what to say? What if they ask me a question I can't answer? And I've never done this before. I'm a, I'm a new believer. I'm not really sure how these things work. You know, my life isn't perfect. I, I, I might be seen as a hypocrite. What if I embarrass myself? How is this gonna impact a relationship with this person? I don't really know how to start that conversation. I'm an introvert, not a pastor. What do I do? How many of you have had these fears before? At least one of them up there. Now, I can't address every one that's on the screen in one sermon, but our passage today in Acts chapter 4 is going to address a few of them from the text of Scripture. We have some Bibles that we're going to pass out. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. And this is our gift to you if you need to take a Bible with you. uh, If you don't have one, uh, this could be our gift to you free of charge. We want you to have the word of God in your hand. And I'd encourage you to have a copy of the word of God open because we will be working through most of the text of Acts chapter 4 today. So as you're turning there, I'll remind you we've been studying the book of Acts. And our tagline for this series is Unstoppable Spirit, Unstoppable Church. We last left off on a bit of a cliffhanger. Acts chapter 4, Jesus ascends to heaven. He promises to send the Holy Spirit down. And Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes upon the church, baptizing them and filling them and empowering them to do the work of ministry. And we see many, many people come to know Jesus Christ as a a result of Peter sharing the gospel with them. And then Acts chapter 3, Peter and John heal a man who was lame from birth And Peter uses that opportunity to share the gospel with a crowd of Jewish people in the temple. Now, you might remember Peter was quite offensive in his sermon if you were here last week. He said some things that I am sure did not go over well with the Jewish people who were listening. For example, he said to the Jewish people, You killed the author of life, you murdered the Messiah. I thought about starting the conversation with the Jewish guy next to me in the hockey game like that, but I decided on a different kind of a tactic. But Peter says, you killed the Messiah, repent, turn from your sin. As I said last week, he doesn't beat around the bush. I mean, Peter doesn't water down his words. He is clear. He is straightforward. And I'm, I'm pretty sure Peter was from New Jersey at some point in his life, right? I mean, just the way that he talks, he's just, he's right to the point and tells you what he's thinking. Now, the question is, how are the Jewish people actually going to react? And what would you do if you heard that sermon? If you tell a bunch of people that they're sinners and need to repent, that's offensive enough. If you tell a bunch of Jewish people that the Messiah that they've been waiting for all this time, he has come and you have murdered him, and now you need to repent. That's a whole new level of offense, isn't it? Well, I'll tell you this, it doesn't even get to the end of the sermon before the Jewish people have a reaction. The way the text is written, before the sermon is over, the Jewish authorities are coming at Peter and John. Take a look at the top of Acts chapter 4. We'll start in verse 1. The Bible says, as they were speaking. So again, in the middle of the sermon, as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. Greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. And they re- arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be- about five thousand. Now, this is quite the reaction from the Jewish people. Remember, Peter and John are the main players here, the guys that are preaching these sermons. Acts 3 only mentions Peter preaching, but it seems that John was also preaching with him uh, because he's the one that's also arrested with him and put in jail as well. But while they're still preaching, they're confronted by these priests. It says the captain of the guard was with them, the captain of the temple. That's, That's basically like the temple's head of security. He comes out, and the Sadducees also come with him. Now, who are these Sadducees? Uh, It's it's probably a good idea that we explain them for a little bit here because we're going to see them come up quite a few times in the book of Acts. The Sadducees were this group of religious people who had a very particular kind of belief in God and the Old Testament law. Uh, The old joke, the old way of remembering the difference between the Sadducees and the Pharisees, you might have heard this one, um, is that the Sadducees were sad, you see, because they didn't believe in the resurrection, they didn't believe in a literal resurrection, so they were sad, you see. Now, they weren't always sad, obviously, but that's just kind of the way that you can remember them. You could see, though, why Peter's preaching would have been really offensive to this group of people. For, for a group of people who does not believe in a literal resurrection to come, hearing that the Messiah has come, you have murdered him, he has resurrected, and now is promising a resurrection for other future believers, that's like the worst-case scenario theologically for the Sadducees, right? Right? So they are offended. They didn't just deny the resurrection. They didn't believe in angels. The Sadducees only believed in the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. You could think of them, and, and this might be a little bit offensive, I guess, but you could think of them as like the conservative fundamentalists of the first century. That's, that's kind of how they operated. They didn't like change. Every little deviation from their belief got them angry. They had their particular version of the Bible that they used. The text doesn't say this, but I'm I'm pretty sure that when the lame man started leaping and praising God in the temple, they were the first group to come up to him and say, sir, sit down. There's no dancing in church. Right? They were were the conservatives of the first century A.D. They're also loyal to Rome. So there was some disagreement between them and other religious groups, even Jewish religious groups. They associated themselves with Rome. They associated themselves with the wealthy, with the upper class. And sometimes they would work with the government to kind of get what they wanted in, in life. So the priests are there, the temple guard, the Sadducees, kind of all the bigwigs come upon Peter and John. They weren't happy about what they heard. You could even sense it in the way that Luke writes about this. They came upon Peter. Peter, and John. They didn't come up next to them. They didn't walk up to them. They, they came upon them. You could even translate that. They descended upon them or they stood over them. It's kind of a hostile word to use. The text says that they were greatly annoyed at what they were hearing, at the things the disciples were teaching. Again, they didn't believe in a, a literal future resurrection. The Sadducees actually taught that the Messiah was not a person that the Messiah was an ideal and that that ideal had already come in centuries past and they were kind of the, the ones that were holding ground for that messianic ideal. So for Peter and John to get up there and start preaching a literal Messiah who died and was resurrected and promises a resurrection to come, again, that's about as offensive as you can get to this group of people. It was contrary to everything they stood for. It threatened their very existence so they get the temple police to come and they put Peter and John in jail. Now, Jewish people back then didn't actually have prisons. Their, their uh, penal code, the way that it worked, is they would maybe lock you up for a day or two, a night or two, uh, but their penal system did not involve punishments in prison for life or even for any extended period of time. It was, it was probably a pretty good system, quite honestly. It's from the Lord, right? If you were found guilty of something, you might have to pay a penalty you couldn't pay the penalty you might have to work it off in some way you might be executed you might be excommunicated but they didn't put you in prison for life so so they're putting John and Peter in prison but it's only just to hold them until trial on the next day it's getting late in the day they didn't have time for a whole trial so they put them in prison or jail for the night but i want you to notice right away that even this persecution we see did not stop the spread of the gospel Despite these two believers getting locked up, the gospel still continues to be powerful and effective. It says the number of believers rose to about 5,000 during that time. The text actually says the number of men who believed. It uses the word for males there, not not just for mankind as a whole, but for males, which means that surely it was even further and bigger than 5,000. There's been a progression in Acts in this regard. Acts chapter 1 120 believers are crammed up in an upper room waiting for the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter two, by the end of that chapter, 3,000 people are saved. Acts chapter four, 5,000 men are following after Christ now. What a cool progression we see already in this book. The Holy Spirit is at work. The gospel is working despite pressures mounting from the religious leaders and the outright persecution that is rising among them. We'll come back to that in a few minutes in this sermon. Let's see what happens next. Peter and John are put in prison. Now they're brought in before trial. Pick it up in verse 5. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Luke drops a few names here, and he says, all the rulers, all the scribes, all the elders were gathered together. That's what we call the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was like the Supreme Court for the Jewish people in those days. It had 71 members. 70 of those members were made up of priests and scribes and Sadducees and Pharisees and all those religious leaders, elders of the people. And the the 71, the number one, was what they called the, the chief priest or the high priest, he was like over the Sanhedrin. Rome allowed that the Sanhedrin would have some actual governing power in those days. So this is a, a group of people that were allowed to make real decisions and even allow certain punishments if somebody broke the religious law. So 71 members of this Sanhedrin all gathered together, and they, it says they put Peter and John in their midst. The Sanhedrin used to sit in a big semicircle. So you can kind of imagine this scenario here. Uh, Imagine how intimidating that must have been. Two guys right here and and 71 of the most important Jewish religious leaders surrounding you, all staring down at you, putting you on trial. And Luke does drop a few names as he talks about them. He talks about Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas. Now, it's interesting that Luke calls Annas the high priest because technically speaking, he wasn't. He was in the past, Uh, he ruled from 6 to 15 AD, but he was uh, deposed as high priest by Rome and eventually his son-in-law Caiaphas took that mantle for him, so he took office. But the Jewish people still considered Annas as their high priest. He still ruled, he still had a job in the Sanhedrin, but, but he wasn't the actual high priest, but he was kind of like the people's high priest, maybe the, the high priest emeritus, like the high priestly statesman or something like that. When I was a senior pastor in Michigan, I was at a church that had a 60-year history. So they had been around for 60 years, and 30 of those years, it was led by, by a, a, sen- a single senior pastor. Um, and even though that pastor had been retired for about 20 years when I got there, or so, something like that, 20 years, 10 years, he was still an active member of the church. So he was still there. Now, even though I was the official senior pastor, many people, especially some of the older people at first, really looked to him as their pastor. Now, thankfully, he was one of the godliest, most humble men I've ever met. Never had any tension with him. He was always a great support. He was an encouragement to me during the the two years that our ministries overlapped before he passed away and went to the Lord. But in Israel, during the time of the book of Acts, Annas had been off the high priestly throne, so to speak, for over two decades. And yet he was still viewed as the people's high priest. Decisions still had to go through him. If you read the Gospel of John, you'll notice when Jesus is taken to trial, before they take him to Caiaphas, they take him to Annas. They want to know what he thinks. They want to know what this guy is is going to do with him. So these are some big names for sure to be brought in uh, before as, as the disciples are. Jonathan and Alexander were there too, he says. Uh, we don't really know for sure who these guys are. Jonathan might have been um, another son of Annas who was later a replacement for Caiaphas. We have no clue who Alexander is, but they're important enough and Luke knows them enough to be able to mention them there and say, these guys were there as were all the rest of the group. So the Jewish bigwigs, they all get together. They put Peter and John in the, in the middle of their semicircle and they begin their interrogation. By what power and by what name do you do these things? Who is your daddy and what does he do? Right, Like the, the Arnold Schwarzenegger kind of uh, intimidation tactic here. The spotlight is on them. The heat is turned up. They don't, they don't have their lawyer present, but they have something else, don't they? They've got the power of the Holy Spirit behind them. Look at Peter's initial response. You can, you can hear the Spirit of God working through this man, verse 8 to 12. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified... Whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That's a sermon for you. Incredible response. This is going to address the first of three evangelism fears that I'm gonna mention in the text today. Evangelism fear number one is lack of experience. What if I don't know what to say? I haven't done this before. I don't have much experience before people. What if I'm not sure what to say? The first thing that Luke tells us is that Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, that's an interesting thing to say, especially since if you've been following in the book of Acts so far, you know that in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit baptized the believers, the text actually said there that the believers were filled with the Holy Spirit. And here again, Luke says that Peter was again filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, how can you be filled when you're already filled? Here's how I like to explain this uh, to my, my theology classes when we think about the idea of being baptized and being filled with the Holy Spirit, a little bit of different concepts in scripture. Every believer is baptized by the Holy Spirit upon salvation. We talked through that uh, one of the first weeks through this, this study here. That at the, the, I said the baptism of the Spirit is the event at a believer's salvation in which the person is spiritually united with Christ and the church. At that moment of salvation, a believer is baptized in the Spirit and also filled with the Spirit. But although the baptism of the Spirit is a one-time thing at salvation, the Bible speaks of filling as something that is ongoing in a believer's life. Ephesians chapter 5 commands us to be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's a command. It's an ongoing thing we must submit to. So when I talk to my uh, theology classes, I like to use the example of a balloon. If I take a balloon and I blow up a balloon, is it full well, it's full with air, right? It's filled with something. But I can continue to blow it up a little bit more, and then it's it full? It's even more full. Then I could blow it up a little more. Is it even more full? And more full, and more full, right? You can keep on blowing up that balloon until it pops, and that's where the analogy breaks down. But it's a little bit like being filled with the Spirit of God. When you are a Christian, when you come to know Christ, you are filled with the Spirit of God. And yet it's a continual filling that we are commanded to submit to. We submit to the filling of the Spirit by prayer. We submit by by doing the things that God has commanded us to do. We crucify the deeds of the flesh. And Peter here, it says, is once more filled with the Holy Spirit. And believers, you also are filled with that same Holy Spirit. And that's the answer to this first evangelism fear. What do we do if we're worried about lack of experience? Well, the remedy is that the Holy Spirit fills believers, empowering them with boldness and giving them the right thing to say. This is exactly what happens here in Acts chapter 4. And this, by the way, is exactly what Jesus promised would happen way back in the Gospel of Luke. Luke's first book that he wrote, the Gospel of Luke, here's what Jesus says to his disciples. He says, when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities... Do not be anxious about what you should, or how you should defend yourself and what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Notice that little word, when. Not if, but when. Godly believers will be persecuted in Christ Jesus. It's not an if, it's a, it's a when, it's gonna happen. If you're living a godly life, that is. You will indeed find yourself at some point in life being persecuted. But the Spirit of God will be with you. There is nothing to fear with the Spirit of God with you. He will give you the right words to say at the right time. Before you open your mouth, silently ask the Lord, fill me with your spirit, God. Empower me with boldness. Let me know the right thing to say to this individual at this moment. I should also say this, practice makes perfect, or at least closer to perfect. Perfect. The first time I shared my faith, how do you think that went? It's a train wreck. I look back and I cringe at the things that I used to say when I was sharing the, the gospel with people. But I learned from my mistakes. I grew in my experience. So if you feel like lack of experience is holding you back, my best advice to you is just try. Just get on that bike and try, right? Like just keep doing it. And the more you do it, the better you're going to get at sharing the gospel with people around you. So, Peter, he's filled with the Holy Spirit, and he does now what becomes kind of a familiar thing for us to see Peter doing. He goes right for the Jewish jugular. He says, If you're questioning us about this good thing that was done, a crippled man is now walking. Please know that it's not us who healed him, but it's Jesus, who, by the way, you murdered. He says it again to them. You crucified him, but God raised him from the dead. In that one sentence, he gets at the essence of the gospel, though, doesn't he? You are sinners. Jesus died and Jesus rose again. There it is right there. God provided hope through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, I can imagine that this must must have been quite offensive for the religious leaders to hear. You murdered the Messiah, he says. That's an offensive message. And it's especially offensive when Peter starts quoting Scripture to prove his point. That's what he does in verse 11. He says, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, and he has become the cornerstone. Now, those words are lifted directly from Psalm 118, verse 22. In the original context of Psalm 118, the unnamed psalmist, whoever it was that was writing it, is writing about his experience being persecuted by enemies of God. And in verse 22, he compares himself to a rejected stone that later became a cornerstone. Now, a cornerstone, we we don't usually talk about cornerstones when we're building things today, but a cornerstone back then was the stone, usually the first stone set when building a building. You would set it in the right way, the right angle, and every other stone in that building would then be set based on that cornerstone. So one of the most important stones of the entire building that you were building. And what the writer of Psalm 118 says is, I want you to imagine like a bunch of workers work in the quarry. They're cutting the stone out of the rock, and they look at this stone. And they say, yeah, it's not going to be good for anything. They throw it away. But later someone comes and picks up that rejected stone and says, no, actually, this is our cornerstone. And the psalmist says, that's what I feel like. I've been rejected, but the Lord has chosen me for his cornerstone. And then what Peter does is he applies that to Christ. Peter says that was the experience of the psalmist, and and Christ filled up that message even more. The Messiah, Jesus, you rejected him. You were the builders that cast him aside, but God took him and set him as the cornerstone of the church. And then Peter delivers the final statement of his mini-sermon. It's a statement that's so powerful. Let's read it again. Verse 12. Verse 12, one more time. Peter says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is salvation in no one else. And in case you didn't miss it, Peter says it again in a different way. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. In today's all-inclusive, pluralistic society, that's one of the most offensive messages that you can hear. To say that Jesus is the only way to heaven. All roads do not lead to heaven. Sometimes you hear people say things like this. You know, they say, we worship the same God just by a different name. Muslims worship the God, and they call him Allah, and and Jehovah's Witnesses may call him Jehovah, and maybe the, the Hindus call him Brahma, but Christians call God Jesus. We all worship the same God, just a different name. That is not at all what the Bible teaches. The Bible clearly teaches that there is one God, and one name under heaven by which we must be saved. His name is not Allah. His name is not Brahma. His name is Jesus. That's what the Bible teaches. Now, that might be offensive, but it doesn't make it untrue. It's still truth, even if it offends some people. You know, when a patient goes into a doctor's office and hears he has a terminal disease, and the doctor says, but the good news is there is a cure, but there's only one cure. Here it is. Now, that might be offensive to hear. Maybe the patient wants to go and try other things that might, he thinks, cure him. But if there's only one cure, there's only one cure. And there is only one cure for sin. His name is Jesus. Belief in the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ saves us from our sins. By his name, the lame man was healed, and by that same name, sinners are saved. So there's no... There's no beating around this bush. I mean, Peter is super clear about this. He says, there is no other name under heaven given by which men may be saved but Christ. Notice how he says that too, by which men must be saved, by which we must be saved. It is necessary for this salvation. It's not an option. It's not something we can choose or not choose. We can't enjoy eternity and a relationship with God without Jesus Christ. We must be saved through It is the most urgent, most essential, most necessary decision that you will ever make in your life. And I'd urge you to make it today if you haven't. Now, how do the religious leaders react to this offensive message? Well, it says in verse 13 and 14, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. This brings up our second major evangelism fear that we're going to talk about here. Fear number two is lack of knowledge. What if I don't know enough about the Bible to answer questions? I haven't been doing this very long. Maybe uh, you know, I'm not quite confident enough to to know how to respond to somebody if they ask me a tough question about God. What if I, I sound stupid in my response? What if I don't have a seminary degree or a a Bible college degree? Maybe I didn't grow up in church. What do I do then? Did any of that stop Peter and John? When the Sanhedrin looked at the boldness of these men, they can't believe what they're hearing because Peter and John, they say, are uneducated, common men. Now, the Greek word for uneducated is agramatos, Without grammar, you could even translate that literally. Illiterates, someone who's not able to write, that's what that word really means. They're they're using a kind of a derogatory term to talk about these men and saying, these are a bunch of illiterates standing before us, speaking with this kind of boldness. Now, it doesn't mean they were literally illiterate, but it's used in an offensive way to mock them. The Greek word for common men, you're gonna like this one even more, idiotes. You can imagine what English word we get from that one. Now, they're not calling them a bunch of idiots. That word actually refers to amateurs, someone unskilled, a a lay person. They are not learned scholars like us, the Sanhedrin is mocking. They, They have no official training. They don't have a seminary degree. You know what shuts them up, though? Seeing the lame man standing. Seeing the miracle of a life changed by Jesus Christ doesn't matter how much these guys know or don't know. When you see a lame man standing, you can't argue with that, can you? The proof was in the work of God. But I want you to notice what else Luke says. And this helps us if we have that common fear of sharing the gospel. If we have the fear that maybe I don't know enough, I've got a lack of knowledge. Luke says they were astonished and they recognized that these men had been with Jesus. So here's your remedy. Spend more time with Christ. If you're worried because you have a lack of knowledge, spend more time with Jesus. The more educated you'll become on these issues to know what to do and how to respond, spend more time in the Word of God. The more time you spend in the Bible, reading good books about the Bible, listening to good sermons on the Bible, memorizing good passages from the Bible, the more the problem of lack of knowledge is going to go away. And soon one day you're going to say, you know what, I, I probably know more than I realize. Now you Of course rely on the spirit of God for help. You still bathe your conversations in prayer, but the more time you spend with Christ, the more time you spend in the word of God, the more you will know what to say and how to share him with others. Now, don't worry about how much you know or don't know. Just share Jesus. Demonstrate your lifestyle as a proof positive of what God has done. You are that lame person walking because you have been saved. God has done a work in you miraculously. Demonstrate that by your lifestyle. Now, the religious leaders, they're they're kind of left in a tough position. They can't deny this miracle that's happened, standing right in front of them. But, But if they recognize that miracle, then they also have to admit that Jesus Christ is still alive and doing miracles. So what do they do? Look at verses 15 to 18. I love this. They can't deny the miracle. They have to admit, we can't do anything about this guy. I mean, he's here, right? There's no denying this. The apostles haven't really broken any laws, so we can't really charge them with anything. So what do we do about this fledgling movement starting from this guy named Jesus who we thought we killed a couple days ago? Well, the answer is persecution. They decide to start putting the pressure on this group. This is the first time we've really seen this in the book of Acts. They decide, let's intimidate them. Let's pressure them. Let's persecute them in order to order them not to speak about Jesus anymore. Verse 17 even uses a very strong word. Uh, ESV translates it. We're going to warn them. It's probably better closer to translated threaten them. We're going to make threats. This is serious. Stop speaking about Jesus or else. Here's our third evangelism fear. Persecution. You ever worry about this? What if they mock me? What if if they threaten me? What if I lose my relationship with this person if I share the gospel? What if I lose my job? What if I get sued? What if I get locked up? Anyone who's been following the news even remotely the last couple of years, you should see this coming. It's here. We're going to continue to experience more and more persecution, sometimes government-led persecution in this country. There are Christians out there losing their jobs because they won't play the pronoun game. There are Christians out there getting sued because their businesses will not embrace a non-biblical agenda. Persecution is a reality of life for Christians in America today. If we are speaking up about our faith. We've been relatively inoculated from this for a long time in this country, but it is at our doorstep, and it is only going to get worse. What do we do if this is our fear? Look at how Peter and John respond to the threats and pressures of the religious people. Persecution was there. What do they do? Verses 19 and 20. I think you're going to love this. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. This is a bold response, and I want to walk you through this so we can catch the impact of it. What a lot of people don't recognize is that verse 19 is actually a quote. They're quoting Greek philosophers that were popular of their day. Both Socrates and Plato had written and spoken similar situations in their day, as well as some other Greek philosophers as well. It became kind of a cultural meme to say, I'm listening to God, not to man. This is ironic. Remember what the religious leaders thought of these Galilean fishermen? They're idiotes. They're idiots. They're uneducated, illiterate fools. Well, these uneducated, illiterate fools are now throwing around quotes from their own Greek philosophers right back at them. That's cool. Now, what's the point of the quote? Well, not to impress... The point is, God's law trumps man's law. That's the point. And they say, you know this, religious leaders. When we have to choose between following the law of God and following man's law, we're going to choose God's law every time. The religious leaders told them, keep quiet, don't speak about Jesus anymore or else. And Peter and John says, well, you be the judge. Should we listen to you or should we listen to God? Because we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. In the original language, there's a, there's a double negative there in the Greek of that last line. When we use a double negative in English, the negatives kind of cancel each other out, right? I never don't want a cookie. What does that mean? It means I'm always up for a cookie, right? Well, in Greek, if you put two negatives next to each other, what that does is it doesn't cancel out the negatives, it strengthens it. We absolutely cannot help but speak of Jesus Christ. Because we have seen him, we have heard him, and we can't shut up about him. It's out of the question. You could persecute us all you want. You could threaten to sue. You could threaten our lives. You could threaten to imprison us. But we will not stop speaking this gospel. True believers preach the gospel. Doesn't matter what's coming against them. What's the remedy for persecution? Very simple. Don't stop sharing your faith. Don't cower don't be timid, don't run, speak up. We need to remove this idolatrous obsession of ours in the 21st century that thinks that comfort is our number one priority as believers. That's ungodly. Jesus did not promise comfort in this life. He did not promise ease in this lifetime. In fact, as I mentioned earlier, the Bible says that all Christians who desire to live a godly life in Jesus Christ will be persecuted. You can guarantee it. If they persecuted Jesus, they sure are going to persecute us because we are no greater than our master. So believers, be ready for it. Be mentally and spiritually prepared for what is coming down the road and probably what's already at your doorstep. But don't let religious persecution stop you from sharing your faith. If they sue, preach Jesus in the courtroom. If they lock you up, share Jesus with your inmate. If they they threaten to kill you, rejoice that you might get to share the wonderful privilege of suffering with your Lord. But don't stop sharing the gospel. People need Jesus Christ. In fact, the people persecuting you need Jesus Christ. Share it with them. They know not what they do, Jesus says. They desperately need the Lord. Now, as this is going on, look at the reaction of the people. Last two verses of the day, verse 21 and 22. 22. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of all the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. No one can deny this miracle had happened. This guy's over 40 years old. That's ancient. (laughs) Actually, what that tells you is that this guy's been around for a while. Everyone knew him. He was, he was a sad and public figure in Jerusalem, and now this lame man is leaping for joy. And mentioning this guy's age only just kind of heightens the miracle, doesn't it? Forty years old is not the time of life when your body gets better on its own. I'm, I'm approaching 40. I'm almost there. It's a time of life when your body starts breaking down for no apparent reason at all. I wake up in the morning, I've got a limp, my wife's like, what did you do? And I said, I don't know, I slept. Like, there's, there's no reason for it, I'm almost 40, that's what I did, right? This guy's 40, his life is starting over, he's leaping for joy, brand new legs given to him. And the religious leaders have no idea how to even explain this. What do we do with this? How do we stop this movement when this kind of thing is happening? So they send them away, they threaten them anew, don't speak or else. The persecution is about to ramp up in this book. It is going to be difficult to evangelize. And yet at the same time, you can see God working anyway. Next week, Pastor Jeremy is going to lead us through the next section of the book of Acts, chapter 4. And we are going to see how that persecution and the boldness of Peter and John leads to richer fellowship among believers and leads to to a contagious boldness for the other believers. Because they stood up for their faith, others are going to stand up for their faith. Now, I want you to consider your task in sharing your faith. Who have you shared the Lord with recently? What's stopping you from sharing the gospel today with somebody? Is it that you lack experience? Well, if so, please realize that the timeless, most experienced Holy Spirit is empowering you to be effective in evangelism. Do you lack knowledge? You worried about that? If so, draw closer to Christ. Know him more and more through the word of God that you might be more effective in your knowledge. Are you worried about persecution? Well, if so, just realize, please, it's going to happen. Count the cost. If you're doing the right thing as a Christian, you will face some sort of persecution at some point in your life. But please know that God is with you. Your courageous stand in your faith could embolden others to take a stand in their faith as well. And sometimes the result of persecution is the gospel goes out further. We praise the Lord when that happens. But the bottom line is, church, we have a job to evangelize, to share Jesus Christ with others. I was encouraged a couple weeks ago when a, a, recently a believer here shared with me, he has a, what he called a top 10 most wanted list top 10 people in his life most wanted to come to know Christ. And he prays through that list every single day. And that reminds him to share the gospel every day. I would encourage you to go home and make your own top 10 most wanted list and get on your knees and pray to God that these people might come to know Christ and then open up your mouths and start sharing the gospel. Let's pray to that end. Lord, I ask that you would embolden and empower the believers that are here today to be more effective ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When they are persecuted, open their mouths further. Give them boldness, Lord. Give them courage. When they fear their lack of knowledge or their lack of experience, I pray that they would lean further on you and the Holy Spirit, that through their weakness, you might be made strong. And God, I pray that people would come to know Jesus Christ. I pray that through this church, this world would be changed, both locally and abroad. And Father, I pray that as we continue to see people come to know you, you would help them to make disciples who make disciples. That that would be continue to be replicated, and we'd see more and more people going out and sharing their faith with great boldness. Father, as persecution is ramping up in America, I pray that you would embolden our hearts and our lives. Help us to stand firm in the Word of God and our faith come what may. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.